Welcome to The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, On Location with Rockamama's founder, Brian Altrich. Prepare yourself to be exposed to an hour of entrepreneurial energy, advice, and wisdom. From a guy who left South Africa as a teenager to duck apartheid's national service, fed himself in California by playing his guitar and applying some design talents, and then came home to forge a huge success in the toughest business on the planet. Restaurants are an endless juggle between innovation, logistics, staff motivation and profit margins. The hours are impossibly long. Customers can be insufferably difficult. And everyone with a recipe book is a potential competitor. And then there's the ever-present existential threat of accidentally poisoning your customers. Not for the faint-hearted. But this heady cocktail is also addictive, as you'll hear from the entrepreneur extraordinaire, Brian Altrich. The 49-year-old is behind a business which, although not yet six years old, can already be certified a massive success. I love swapping ideas with fellow entrepreneurs, so jumped at the opportunity when invited to lunch at the original Rockamamas in Malibongwe Drive, where Brian and his co-founder, Chef Paul Dempsey, tend to hang out most of the time. So kick back and eavesdrop on an hour of discourse on the way South Africa's icon Nando's influenced Brian, how a road accident and books changed his life, some straight-talking advice for young entrepreneurs and a whole lot more. In short, get ready for an entrepreneurial masterclass. We started, of course, with where the idea for Rockamamas came from a sensational brand that's expanded beyond the humble Malibongwe outlet to 70 more stores in South Africa and 14 outside the country's borders. Just being this type of individual to, to, to keep thinking about ideas and different ways of doing things and solutions and having fun whilst doing it. But with um, Rocket Mamas, you know, I was obviously invested in a couple of spur franchises Whilst having the Spurs, uh, the creativity bug hit me again. I needed to get to um, doing something, and I started some sushi bars. And they were quite successful, and uh, I enjoyed them. But um, it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a place that I could eat every day. And I eventually thought I need to I need to find a way to do the the, the, the ribs, burgers, and wings. Um, meals from scratch, fast food, targeting middle class, but have it as a casual environment where I've got 45% of my, my, my turnover as takeouts because of the cost of occupation in Sahara, but still being able to give a restaurant experience uh, when, when, when people sit down. And I, I, I kind of thought about historically places that I've been to where I lived in the States in the late 80s early, 1989-1990 and, um, and I went back to uh, you know, I was inspired by a lot of those little places because I think a lot of uh, Amer American foods people perceive it just being the big uh, franchise that we have in SA but you know, there's a, uh, Americans have got some wild um, like a wild, wild cooking culture and I went to some awesome places and I, 
and I've also always been inspired by Nando's, having grown up in the south of Joburg. And, and have... Did you know that first store, the one at the top of uh, Rosettenville Road, yeah. the very, very Main, first Main, store? Main yeah, I remember that clearly. You know, I, I used to work in Turpentine up the road, and um, used to go there uh, lunchtimes and that. I, in fact, when I was in, and that was when I was uh, uh, um, at school, I had a part-time job. And I was in Damlin, and I used to get all my mates from the north to come out to um, to uh, Rosettenville for this man. I said, come taste this chicken, guys. And then when Savoy opened, which was their second shop, I kind of uh, I stole my thunder there. I was a bit upset because I couldn't get the north boys into the south of Joburg. But yeah, I mean, I've always been inspired by it. You know what I love about Nando's? It kind of happens to me now when I see one of our stores internationally. But, you know, you're walking around... London, or well, let's go even like Washington. You see a Nando's, you kind of get proud. You know, it's like this, there's this, this, um, this, this, this awesome warmth that you get as a South African. Seeing something that's you know, really, I think it's the greatest uh, in our industry brand that's been exported. And um, and I also I'm very inspired by the way um, the Brosens and the Intervens have managed to tackle the international market because that is it is an unforgiving uh, 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 territory I mean the UK is not easy the USA I mean lovely is not easy Australia is not easy it's tough it's tough 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 and I think that by, by me being inspired by their model managing to get it right that's um, when I talk about inspiration we're sitting in the very first store mm. here in Malibongwe so it's almost like being in Rosettenville uh, yes. Uh, talking to, to, to Fernando in, in that, that first Nando's store. So this, this is a, a similar story. I mean, you, you, why this location and, and why are we sitting here now? So when, when, I, when I finally, I went through a, a lot of work. I was doing smash burgers at home and I was smashing out know, the different blends of mints that I was doing them and the recipes on that. And when I finally decided, okay, I... I've got the product, I've got the menu, I've got the name, the branding, the look. I wanted to be able to target middle class. After my sushi boy uh, adventures, I went quite middle up income, quite upscale um, Japanese cuisine with sushi. And I realized that, you know what, uh, easier clientele to get into the business, but not loyal, middle up income and up and because they travel and they, you know, they always try new stuff. They're adventurous, middle class, very tough market to break into. And I kept going to a lot of different sites and turning them down because I felt that they were too up market or too uh, 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 low uh, uh, low income. So, for example, I turned down a lot of sites in Parkhurst because for me, I found it was too. Um, hipster, trendy, and kind of poserish in a way, and I didn't want to target that market. I think it's actually lucky that I didn't go for that that sort of market, because it could have made it intimidating to the general public. I think it's more difficult to go from a, a trendy brand into, into the, the general public than vice versa. I took, I chose this, I, went, I had about 37 or 38 different sites that I was driving around to, and I, but I'd come on a Tuesday night to the sites, I'd drive, I had a little timetable, I'd come in different mornings, Friday evenings, Sunday lunches, I'd, 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 
and I try to see the flow of what was happening next door, the profile of the customer, and I thought, okay, if I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it here. So there were a lot of failures here. Uh, the, the, the in in this building? Yeah, in this site. First there was the Greek fishermen that closed down and failed. They moved across to um, North Riding, still going there. The nut, they failed here. Two fish and chips, which is your old cheapos, failed here. And then I finally came in here. Just for people who don't know this area, describe it to someone maybe who's sitting in another part of the world. Because obviously these podcasts are listened to everywhere. Mm. I'd say very middle class. Um, more uh, industrial business. So when you go down the road, there's industrial parks. Um, Blue collar. Yeah, I'd say blue collar and mid, middle, like clerks, some middle management maybe in big corporates, not car dealerships. But yeah, and, and, and it depends how far up the road you are. But you could even go to middle lower if you go to the right down that side of the road. But we don't generally attract those. those okay, customers. so why? why? Why did you decide on this area? Because it's, for me, this is true, true middle class, true South African middle class. It'll be difficult for some of your, 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 your listeners to understand in, in some of the more um, uh, first world markets. Is that middle class, in the first world market, they're just not having kids. Or they have 1.1 kids per, 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 per married couple. Yeah, people still have kids, but both couples are working. So it is tough. And people sit in three-hour traffic. You know, it is frightening to, to try to get that little bit of their mind space for them to even try another brand is frightening. You know, it's like, that's so difficult. And I needed to break through with it. And that, that was very important for me. I needed to under-promise and over-deliver for them because I find that the middle class is very neglected in, in our industry. Well, in, in, the, country. in the world, in ask the, the world. Donald Trump supporters. Yeah. You know, and I think so. You know, and I think that that is... The reality of it is, I often say to people, it's not about Trump. It's about the somebody voted him in. People aren't being heard. They're not being listened. That frustration is important. The same thing in food and how they're taken for granted. And, I, and, and I'm passionate about doing fast food with the proper input products, doing it the proper way. Because all these things of illnesses and obesity and all that gets blamed. It's a blame game that gets played. But I think a lot of it's got to do with how intelligent um, a lot of these uh, food technologists and that became, and they, these massive brands that do food and serve food, they, they needed to provide the, the simplest way, the quickest way, but then it's mass-produced, and they started using a lot of stuff like modified corn starch and high-fructose corn syrup, and if you really want to, I think, if you break down a lot of these diseases and that, that, that that we, that, you know, they've got sugar tax on that. I actually don't think that's a problem, me personally. I think it's the way it's processed. But what we do here, for instance, for me, it's I've got a saying when we do menu items, and like I always say, it must be quality and purpose before price. Trying to get price in the middle class by doing that is hell difficult. But we do do it. So we're slightly less profitable, I suppose, as a franchise than. Uh, because we work on a slightly higher cost of sales. But as we gain scale, I'm able to now start working in a different way to try to achieve this. I'll give an example. I want to be free-range grass-fed. In the beginning, when you start off, 
you're going to pay a premium, but then you can't target the middle class in the pricing. So I built the scale now, and now we're engaging with farmers directly because we'll say, we'll buy, but this is how you're going to treat. And I think Woolworths has got that market quite, quite sorted. And this is the journey we're on now. So the pain that we've had to take in the first five years, because we generally ran for gram maybe 5% more expensive than our competitors, maybe not even some of the other competitors, but not these the, the main mainstream guys. We, we, we're maybe 15% more expensive than them, but we are still in middle class prices. But where, did you, where did you get this? Because today, many people do get it that the next big tobacco is big food. Because when you're starting a business, there are many other things on your mind rather than hey, let's go with grass-fed, let's go with more organic food. Obviously, my, my daughters have had a privileged upbringing and went to private schools and the like, and I, and I looked at them and their peers still going to the main bad-for-you fast-food joints. Even though there are some offerings that are perceived healthier, but they're not sexy, and I think this is something that people don't realize is that a teenager is going to be rebellious in many different ways and one of the ways is that they also want to consume what a lot of us grew up on so we can sit and be all holy about what we put in our bodies now but but a lot of us that are over 50 I'm 49 on the cusp we we grew up with this type of food so maybe in South Africa, not to such an extent, but I realize that living in the States, we did, but we had sanctions. But we generally still had it if we were in an urban environment like Johannesburg and the like. When I saw my daughter's generation still going out and buying this stuff, I kind of saw an opportunity. And then, having been in the game and in the industry, I said, well, how do I run a business that does make good food fresh? And try to deliver what the world is moving to towards with regards to organic I mean there was a, organic was a big thing a couple of years ago but now you know you are defining in Woolworths because that was a not Woolworths but the company that was doing organic was milking but you know we said it should be that right because that's how I grew up we grew up there well, I remember we used to have to go collect milk in these big weird like aluminium looking stainless steel drums and you take off the top and there was all the curd was there. My mother used to have to take it off. The curd, that's what we consumed. That was organic. It's very difficult to make those claims if you cannot have the market. The market's too small and it makes it very expensive. So I just saw an opportunity. I'll never promise that it is grass-fed free range, but to the best of my ability, I want traceability, which we have got. So, but I've never promised that, which I think has helped us grow because... 10% that have asked those questions, I've been asked and said, well, it's not free range grass-fed, but I'm working towards it. And you know, the, maybe out of those 10%, 20% say, well, I'm not going to consume it. Well, then go find your, your organic grass-fed. hope it's not a lie, but at least you know we're working towards it. The other 80% value that we're working towards it. We're doing the same thing with vegan at the moment. And so I really want to be able to have do it for the right reason, not just monetize it. So a lot of guys are jumping on the bandwagon with... Uh, with vegans booming all over booming. the world. Yeah? It is booming, but also you've got to be very careful as to what, why we want to do it. So we've had vegan from day one, but the, 
difference is now vegans booming because they want a meat replacement. So I've got one here that we've done actually, and the other day I had somebody say it was meat. They actually, were, they said we gave them meat. So now I've got to sit here and I say, okay, because we're trialing it. How do I do it where it's only 5% maybe of our sales? How do I do it now with them to not think that it was meat? Because I had a vegan say that it was meat. And, it, and, it's, and it's not. But we're playing around with it similar to what the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meats is doing. We've, we've got similar recipes. We're doing it in labs as well and to try get a fresh product that's done properly but it's purely plant-based. So we're trialing it and we have this complaint. So now I'm going to actually smash it into a square patty so people can see that if it's square, it will be vegan. You know, because but that is the way they want to meet substitutes, not necessarily just a vegan. My sister was a vegan for many years. My sister's in her mid 40s. From the age of 13, she was a vegetarian, 17 vegan. For the same reasons that what the millennials want are demanding it now for environment and animal welfare. So for me, it's not new in my family because I saw it right. Whether it's healthy is another choice. I think that's a dangerous thing that they open up because I. I I've yet to meet somebody that's a vegan, that's been a vegan for over 20 years that's healthy. I mean, there's, there's other, you know, they've got to be conscious, we've got to, we've got to have a conscience when we push these things as business people. What I'm getting from this conversation so far is that you, you really pay a lot of attention to the detail. Just go back a little bit for the detail of people who want to get to know you. you at 16, you you had an entrepreneurial spirit already. What what were you doing then? What what were you doing that was different to perhaps the kids in your class? I was always a dreamer. I think that's what the the, the, the teachers always said. I I, tink, I tinker. I, 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 although I, I I never used to finish. So as a youngster, I had a problem with that. I I'd, I'd come up with ideas and mess around with. But as soon as it bored me, I'd leave it and I'd drop it. But I was because I'm. When I was younger, at school and I was doing art and I was playing guitar, I had a lot of interests that would take my eye off that ball. So I'd want to invent something or do something and I'd, I'd get 60% of the way there and then I'd drop it. You know? So it was a bad trait that I had and I think that as we go through life, things happen. So even in my early 20s, I'd start businesses that get successful but I'd use the profit to go party and it... it, it, it I didn't, I, I didn't follow things through, but I had, a, I had quite a bad car accident in... Uh, so firstly, I learned a lot in the States when I was there. What, what, what took you there? To dodge the army. <laughs> yeah, I just got out of here. I was working on oil rigs for gold exploration. Made some good money during my matriculate during holidays and that. They were American-based and uh, I paid for my ticket and I bailed off. And I, those years, there was no... no, no, no internet and computers for the military to see where you were or the government. So I just sent a letter that I'm going to go study and my mom signed it and off I went. And um, and you did I, study? I didn't study. No, but you studied the world. Oh, you, yes. University, university of, of life. You never went to universities? You Nada, nothing. You know, sir, when I ended up in the States, I think that it was just like leaving apartheid South Africa. You suddenly start like, you're out of the bubble and it's just... It, you know, like my, my young mind was like a sponge, I suppose. It was like a three, four, five, six, seven-year-old kid, you know, it just absorbs. Yeah, I was 18, 19, leaving a very conservative country, frustrated maybe. I was a big rebel and a naughty kid, uh, teenager, going there and 
and the, the Americans in, in Los Angeles kind of embraced us, the two of us that went, Paul, who was actually a, was a joint founder of Rocket Mamas, he's a chef, he's done some of the stuff for me, he went with me, also dodged that woman. And I think that the Americans were scared of us because we saw this freedom as, you know, like no rules, freedom. Learned a lesson there that there's rules, you know. You, you, you. Anyway, I think that rationality and um, having a pragmatic approach to business is very important. So, you know, having a having the colours and the, the the looseness of creativity is one thing. But throughout my, my, my early life and even to my mid my mid twenties, uh, uh, I, I was irresponsible with business because I never balanced the box. I never. And that's not success. You can't achieve success with it because it's also being selfish because I started employing people and then I started realizing, well, I, I need to pay these people. But you're being irresponsible with your business. And so I learned a lot of lessons in my, in my, in my, um, my, my mid-20s. And then I had a bad car accident. And that kind of woke me up quite a bit. And whilst I was in, incapacitated, a couple of mates gave me some of these uh, self-help books because I was a little bit depressed because I, I nearly lost my arm so I wasn't going to be able to play guitar and I had a head injury and I had scars and I had a broken leg and, and I'm a very effervescent individual, I'm a get up and go and I'm like, I just want to get things done but I distort reality with trying to get things done and, and being bedridden in, in a hospital I started reading some of these books, and some of them were like, were, you know, like fundamental for me. You know, like and how you how you need to harness your positivity, and but how you also need to be responsible with success, and and, and understand that it's not just about you on this journey. And thereafter, I did tinker around with a couple of uh, failed ventures. The one was a franchise. What, what kind of books? What changed your okay, mind? Okay, so I read uh, Think and Grow Rich. Okay, Napoleon Hill. Yeah. Um, quite a few of those stories. I read another book that really blew me away. Unfortunately, I don't know the name. It was a book about a, a, a guy who was from poverty in New York City, became a, 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 a bellboy, a, a porter at a hotel, but an upscale hotel, and refused to take tips from the rich and uh, wealthy and the powerful in New York City. And eventually, he was invited onto the yachts and, the, and all the parties. It was the only bellboy in, in, uh, or porter that was mingling with these guys and I mean some guy gave him a job in his listed company as a personnel director or whatever but where, what I always remember about him was he, he had, a, he had a, an attitude of can do and his boss's um, company were, were, were going to unveil a, a bus of Thomas Edison in Florida, New York so his boss said, get um, one of the top sculptures in New York City to do this thing. And I wish I knew this book, because I tell people this story, and I, I'd love to reread it, because I was young when I read it. But he finally went and he, he, he got the, the top sculptor in New York scene, art scene, to do it. And um, everybody said, don't disturb the guy, don't disturb the guy. And three weeks before they had to unveil it, he went to go look for the guy, and the guy was a drug addict, and he had done nothing. So this, this particular um, ex-porter, um, bellboy or whatever, went and bought books, bought clay, bought everything, and he himself did the bus 
He'd never done sculpturing, art, or anything like that. And by the time they actually flew this thing down to the, the institute in, in Florida, and they've got a photo of it in the book, it's still there. I'm gobsmacked at how realistic it looks. And he did it. And, and he was credited for that. And I loved that because that attitude, it just shows you attitude, anything's possible. And then obviously I also read um, the one book, actually uh, was given to me by a mate of mine who, who died tragically three years ago in a home invasion. It was a book uh, called um, Awaken the Giant Within, Anthony Robbins. And then I got very into reading company stories. I read thereafter, For God, Country and Coca-Cola, the Benetton story I read, um, The Chocolate Wars, the Hershey, Mars uh, stories I read, King Gillette's book, um, McDonald's books. I've, I've read a lot about business books, business histories, and I love circumstance and how, how that's part of business. So, for instance, I love. I don't know if you've ever read the Benetton book. Luciano yeah. Benetton is inspirational for me because uh, even his uh, right through to their, 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 their marketing right through to the 80s was done by Toscani, I think it was a, a, a photographer, who was actually a guy who was friends with Luciano Benetton, who took photos at the end of World War II, I think, of Mussolini, uh, the, when they overthrew Mussolini and his girlfriend. But Benetton was, I love, I, I love the Italian industrial revolution, if we can call it that, because they grew from those villages out. So Fiat, Benetton, and all these Italian companies to this day employed from the villages. They didn't go, they didn't industrialize urban Italy. And Luciano Benetton was working in a clothing shop, and his sister was knitting little jumpers. And after the war, because after the war they also they had a lot of males that had been killed because of the war, but then also when they were, the GIs liberated them, they also let a lot of the, the, the mafiosa um, uh, out of jail thinking that they were, they were war um, um, prisoners. And because everybody, they, there was such a, a lot of the young kids were killed, and then the elderly uh, kid, uh, uh, adults were killed, male adults were killed. Everybody was wearing black in Italy. She couldn't get black fabric or black um, wool, so she was knitting in these funny colours, which were like pale uh, yellow and reds and that. And Luciano was working in a tailor, and he asked his bosses, could he just sell some of these jumpers? because he was living in a village, in a squatter camp type thing with his mom and his sister. And this thing became eventually one of the biggest sellers in the, in the shop, got more space, and agreed to Benetton. And I love, I love stories like that, because you look at the circumstance and you say, wow, imagine she had gotten a black wool, all she would have done is knit black wool. So Malcolm Gladwell is quite interesting, a lot of his books are the way he puts circumstance together and how you achieve success from circumstance. And the tinkering, which he talks about a lot. Yeah, in tinkering. So Coca-Cola, for God Country and Coca-Cola, very similar. As a Chandler and his son, the way they grew that brand out, and what, what, what I like is that I believe, if you look at modern-day careering services, for instance, I think that they, they, they grew out of, like any business that, that, that happens, a, a revolution that happens, for Coca-Cola, they needed to get point-of-sale materials to all their little shops that they were supplying. 
somebody said, I'm going to do that and become a career service because I couldn't use the postal service. It took too long. And, I, you know, like, I, I, I love trying to understand what is the relationship between consumer and brand and how is that relationship different between a consumer, uh, between us as human beings. So I've, I've kind of looked at it that love at first sight, so your name needs to intrigue the customer, love at first sight. Then you go into infatuation. Eventually you get into the dating phase. This is the product life cycle. And eventually you get into um, getting engaged. So you've courtship, getting engaged, eventually marriage. And you've got to reinvent yourself completely to understand that that is a relationship between customer and brand. It's exactly the same. So if it's a one-night stand, yeah. it's a fleeting brand. <laughs> so, what happened after the first, this very first uh, Rocker Mamas that we're sitting in now? Where, where did the story go from there? How many, how many outlets do you have today? So locally in, in SA, I've got 71. 71? 71. In how long? Just over five years. Five, five and a half years. Do you expect that kind of growth? You know, Alec, what I, 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 I was, I, I'm a worker, I love working, but I was heavily involved here. So even though I had my other businesses, I'd get here and I'd spend time here because I, I needed to, I, I needed to understand whether this thing is going to go somewhere. And I suppose they're like mental KPIs, I think, because what, what you, you, you need to, you've got gut feeling, but you also need to understand consumer behavior and see how the customers pick up on this thing. So, for instance, slow start, I have to get the food. I mean, I was smashing the burgers in the beginning. Um, Paul Dempsey was, was my co-founder. He was doing the rib side of things. I brought a couple of my, my guys from my Spurs to help me with service, and we trained people. And I said, guys, don't charge. I see people just started charging. People wanted to pay, and that's how we stopped. But it's very slow. We started slow, slow, and eventually. How do you mean don't charge? I said just give it to the guys when the customers give come. Give it in, to the customers. Yeah, no, we just we, we need to find our feet because I I hadn't trained anybody besides guys that have been with me for years that had maybe been in an ocean bar or in a sushi bar and were spurred. But slowly but surely we we we, we got it going within about. Two weeks, I started saying, "Okay, now we really stop pushing it a bit." I got the, the personality that I wanted, the playlist that I wanted. So a lot of the touch points were ready now, and I had the right faces in the right places, and I could start engaging with customers. And at that point, some of my—I mean, there's quite a few people in this store that were yeah from day one. And the one lady left to go open quite a few shops. She was a cashier. Yeah, I've just brought her back as a manageress, yeah, and it's like coming home for her, but she and another waiter that she would also remind me about, listen, you used to do this, remember you used to tell us, remember the customer's names, the proper hospitality, you know, even though it's a takeout joint, I mean it was a bit small, it was quite a bit smaller than this. Anyway, once I had time to be able to engage with customers, I started picking up something, like I'll give you a perfect example. Friday lunchtime, I think it was about our second or third Friday. We had the lunch trade come in, guys from DSTV, Multi-Choice. That Friday night, because I'd spent time on the floor, and I had effervescence and it was about. That Friday night, we had five tables that had brought their mates or their partners 
from lunch. So I thought, okay, here's something here. So I started monitoring that. The repeat visits were, 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 were so much that it, it would blow me away. We'd sit here at lunchtime. We only had 12 tables there. You know? We'd sit here at lunch, and then we were doing takeaways as well. Because I, I did that from the beginning. I'd, as people came in, I said, eat in or take out. Hey, you do takeaways. Yeah, because I wanted to push that. Because takeaways are a very difficult game to break into. Very difficult. Anyway, so sort of monitoring how many people would come back twice a day. Now, that's quite something. You start something, you come back twice a day for a meal. And every day we're getting somebody revisiting twice a day. And then I realized, okay, this is going to be big. I need to structure this thing properly. After about three months, I had guys wanting franchise. I turned down. I wouldn't do franchise. I said, I cannot take your money without having the support. Okay? It's impossible. I'm, I'm going to cock this thing up big time. I need to be able to do this properly. Then I had um, some of our other listed firms coming to try and engage with me. I had some uh, mates of mine that wanted to put some private equity together. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people approached me. So I had some corporates approaching me. But you knew you had something big then. I knew I had something big. And then I eventually, op I said, let me open the first couple of shops first. So I did Four Ways was my second shop, which I think we opened about just under a year after this shop. But Brian, you never took money from anyone? Did you use your own money? Always my own Why? Because I was scared of it being a one-hit wonder. And, and, I, and I believe in capitalism. I mean, you know what? I believe in you need to take risks to, re to get a reward. But if I cannot offer you the, the proper infrastructure of franchising to make it less of a chance of you failing, especially in such a tough game. I'd rather, you know, I can't, I, you know a, a company like Spur or famous brands, you know these, or McDonald's for instance, these guys have got masses and, 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 and hours and hours and hundreds of hours worth of training and different scenarios of years of, of systems that assist the franchisee to be able to become successful. I haven't, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been a Spur franchisee for 14 years. And I often used to joke with Mason, I used to say, you know, Spur is a company that can take a farmer and make him a restaurant too. It is so to the point. Everything is KPI'd. Every part of the business has got training that I would have maybe assumed that you'd know. You know, that you'd be able to... So I'd, I'd walk detail away. again. Yeah, and I'd, and I, but it's also about, you know, I think that trust is such an important thing in life and people take it for granted and I wouldn't want to break down people's trust I'm the type of person that would say I'm scared I'm gonna lose a customer you know so I'm gonna engage with you for franchising but now you're still gonna be a customer you know it's like you know you and your mates and your family what when did that when did that all change well I, I opened four ways I did it I did the, the designs, the deals, I put the money down, I had a family member of mine, my brother-in-law, he said he wants to do it, so I said, okay, I won't charge you franchise fees, do it, but I knew he knew the game. So he did that, and then I opened Ravonia, I owned all the stores, and then I started charging franchise fees from the stores to a holding company, and I started engaging with 
Piaf and Tonda from Spur, and um, they showed interest, and I said, okay, can I use some of the IP? And Pierre gave me his blessing, start using some of the IP and start engaging with franchisees before we did a deal. So, which which was which I, I thought was very good of them because it allowed me to start confidently saying, I can, I can give you training, I can. And I started signing franchisees based on that. But by the, I think I opened one store and then I did a deal with Spirit. So, I already. I, they just opened, and already I, I, I was able to give them all the training, all the documentation. Yeah, we, we, it, we, 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 it was almost like I can't explain it to you. Had we done the deal and then I tried to play catch up, it would have been a problem. Because I had all the IP and it was given to me by Spur, by Spur Corp., I changed it to Rocker Mummers, and I, I spent a lot of hours doing that and the franchise agreement that I had. I didn't even have to get them to change franchise agreements. I already had it. Why, so, why do a deal then, when you've done all the hard work? No, because you need the people. There's a big difference. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's human capital of Spur, the company like Spur, is, you, you wouldn't be able to develop that in in five years. But obviously, there's been a lot of failures in, in this industry. We've seen a lot of guys, um, even of late, we've seen a lot of guys that are battling, going back to the market for money and that. I mean, it's common knowledge. I can mention some names. Huh? I mean, Tace Holdings, which is uh, Domino's and stuff. There's massive problems. The market knows about it. I believe that I understand uh, a company owned stores like Nando's do. Gold Brands is another one. They went and sold a lot of franchises. I think they, at one stage they, they were just opening up these things everywhere. 200 of them or 250 of them, they're sitting down at about 60. I mean, they, I, in places that I trade, I've seen three or four close down within six months. There's a lot of human capital, experience, and theoretical training that goes into this. And that's why I did a deal. So so what happened then once you brought Spur in? Clearly you knew the Spur people. You knew Alan Amber, Pierre Fontonda, understood what they could bring to the party for you. you. If you stepped away a little bit and had you continued doing it yourself, what would the difference have been today? I think I would have had one or two failures within the first two years um, because with a big corporate you also get preferential landlord deals and and sites. I mean it is what it is. You know, it's like I also would have must probably had it done it differently, I would have probably owned all of them. I, even though I'd entered into one franchise agreement, it was because I knew I was going to do something with Spur. But I would have probably owned them all, which would have meant a lot slower growth. You know, after about my third store, I started getting a lot of copycats copying me. And some of them had the money and the, the know-how and the scale to be able to roll these things out and I think that maybe they wouldn't have had the exact essence of what we have at Rocker Mamas but they would have taken the, the, the they would have taken something and they would have been first to market there I think that um, we even had some of the, the massive um, groups go to tick 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 menus and try customize which is hell difficult if you haven't grown with that because it's not easy pro- providing customized product for a customer that we evolved into thank god and we've had a lot of guys try to copy us 
but you can't get it. But no regrets looking back? No. No regrets. And, and I'll tell you something. After the amount of failures that I have had in life, I think I wanted to have... Like, I understand why there's 16 PE and why corporates pay 60 months or five years, uh, five PE to the small guy and why if I had to sell the business to you, it's only three years. It's because of risk. I, I, I am, me, me and my family and my partner, Paul, who's, uh, who's a partner in the business. Yeah? So my wife, my girls and myself, and my partner and his wife and girls are more secure because we have a big partner that is listed, that is honorable, that if I had to die, I know that my 25% shareholding is secure. Paul would know his 5% shareholding is secure. And we also, for the investments that people have invested in the brand, that their investments are secure. You know, it's, that, it's, it's so important. I mean, there's an infrastructure throughout the whole of South Africa and into Africa that we are, we're managing to provide the we are managing to provide the management skill from a head office, ops management skill from a head office level and the marketing skill that these franchisees pay us. And there's a lot of rogue franchisors out there that take the money from these franchisees and don't provide them that. You know? And I think that that's what's important. And, I, and I've got a conscience, and that's, and uh, you know, I often say Paul must also sometimes be interviewed because he's a lovely guy, and he's also he's just like me in that way. He's got a conscience. We don't just want to go out there and do people in, you know. It's like, it's, it's a it's a lovely story, but when did you know that it was time to do that deal? I actually wanted to do the deal before we opened the first shop, <laughs> you know, because I knew I, I wanted to be able to. But I was also, my, my, ideal, my idealistic, uh, no-fail attitude, I said, let's just do it, I'll give you guys half of it, you know. Because I, I first mentioned that I'm going to do this to, the, to Pierre and to Kevin, a couple of the board guys. Pierre said, go make it a success and I'd rather come buy it from you. You know, I, within the first two weeks, I knew we were going to do something eventually. Uh, Pierre and the guys came to visit me, and Pierre said, you got work to do? They came here within the first two weeks as well. I wasn't ready yet. I wasn't professional enough. So Pierre said, you got work to do, and when you get to your third shop, I'll come buy it from you. How, so how I, did you know they were the right partners? Because I, I, had an, I had a negative experience with one of the other major groups when I was a lot younger, and I believe that it's in your DNA if things are... What was it? They don't go into detail, no, but, I, but, but, but I opened a franchise and I felt that I was done in. Um, they didn't, they didn't provide me with what I paid for as a franchisor, and um, it was a failure. And yes, we got it. Um, it is risk and reward, and it's capitalism. You got to. Uh, I'm willing to accept that, but I just felt that I was overcharged, and I felt that you know, like them, there's a culture of that. I believe that would be. As they've grown over the years, that I wouldn't uh, have entertained. I wouldn't have done a deal with them in any way. And one thing about Spurs, from when I first met the guys and I opened my first Spur, I found them 100% honest and, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a company of integrity. And that was then, me as a franchisee, I felt, you know, and I think that me, me personally, for, 
full-service restaurant uh, the most successful in the country. I mean, they're 52 years, 53 years. So what happens now? Uh, you, you're 49, you've still got lots of energy, um, you, you're still very passionate about the brand. 71 stores in South Africa, you had talked earlier about international. Yeah, well, we, I think we're sitting on 14 international. Where? We've got three in Mauritius, we've got one in Zim's about to build our second one. Um, Botswana, Namibia, Kenya, busy with the second one. Namibia, busy with the second one. We've got two in Saudi Arabia, busy building three more in Saudi Arabia. Cyprus, we've got one um, soon to start a second one. India, how, we've how much got of one. that do you get personally involved with? Look, in the beginning, I didn't really, but ironically, we had a board meeting now. I just got back from Cape Town on Monday, we had a meeting, and Pierre Fantonda, Mark Farrelly and myself want to actually go away and s- for a day or two and sit down and strategize how we're going to do this Rock and Mama's international rollout. Um, Learning from I, the Entovens? I think so, you know. I think that, you know, I, 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 you know what, I find Nando's a very uh, altruistic company, so we engage quite a bit. And had I listened to, firstly, Robbie, and then we also... Pia and I met with Jeff White for lunch about a, just under a year ago, and I've dealt with Mike Denoon, who did a lot of the international rollouts. Um, and ironically, one of my, my franchisees is um, Brian Sachs. But you know, he, he invested because he loves the brand, and he's retired now from, from Nando's, but he's, he's, he just understands the game big, big time. He understands it big time. But I. I engage with them quite a bit and they warn me about certain markets I shouldn't have gone into. Be prudent and understand that you are going to fail in certain markets. And I found Australia tough, as, a, as if Spur themselves haven't found it tough in 20 odd years. But we'll find a way to do it, but, but, but we need to do it more the way Nando's do it. They've done, because they've had the failures and they've had the successes and they have gone altruistic way about them. They're not a listed company, they're private and they don't mind sharing information. We need to use that information to the best of our ability. We spent two, three hours, three of us with Mike Denoon at the Nando's head office about international expansion, about the difficulties of it and we still went into India. You know, India is not an easy market. You know, so now we're there but it costs money to be there. Whereas Saudi Arabia as you're opening more stores, you start getting to a break-even internationally quicker. I love Africa, and I often say the best thing to do is do, do it within one or two hours of your time zone. These international time zones, Australia, I was chatting to the Australian franchisee now 10 minutes before you came and did the interview. You just can't action things quickly enough. You know, you've got to be very careful on how you grow it. Upper Africa into uh, the Middle East and into Cyprus and that sort of neck of the world, I'm, I'm happy. Brian, what, what keeps you interested in this business? I love it. I think what keeps me interested is that when I did the deal, I explained to Pierre that I don't want to be um, policed. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a free spirit. I've always worked for myself. I've never had a boss. If I've got a clock in and out, I don't want to do a deal. I said, when I do a deal, I need you to believe in what I can do and you have to give me executive powers to be able to achieve this. Because 
yes, operationally, there's things that Spur will be able to do way better than I could do with the infrastructure they've got. But when it's anything from that kitchen onwards, I want to be able to do it. So I don't want to be forced to buy sources in or forced to... I still want to make stuff in the store and I want to be able to play in that way. And Pierre said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to break anything that you've got. And, I, and that in itself feels like I'm still building the business. I'm the brand champion. All the time. I mean, I, I, before you came, I, I, I've got my notebook and I was sitting with my chef. I've got Paul, who's uh, uh, one of the chefs, and I've got Anna, who's um, somewhere she's floating at the back here. And I said, okay, you know, my next thing now is I'm busy with um, certain things that I want to do. So I think about things all the time. I, 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 I don't just think about marketing ideas and social media. I think about what I can do in store. So I thought, okay, I want to make even fresher mints. How can I do that? So, okay, I found a way that I can get a recipe of my meat cuts and I'm going to mince it fresh every day in the store. So now we've been doing that, John. we're starting to do it. We go, we've been doing 50-50-50-50, but now we're starting to do it from tomorrow full time. And you, you don't understand the difference in quality. So I've never wanted to be frozen, we're not frozen. But we're still we're getting it minced for us with our recipe. Now I'm getting a, because that's the problem with franchising. You've got to be very careful what you allow the franchisee to do. Because they'll also just go and do anything and mince it. So, I've managed to find a way to be able to cry back this thing, never frozen. The longer it stays, it's like aged meat. And I cannot use my recipe and mince it every store. But then I go one step further. So then I want to do my rolls fresh every day, my own recipe. I don't want to have it brought in. I actually want to bake them there. And we fast food. Huh? So now nobody else does that in the fast food. Nobody else. But so there's, I, a, there's, I, there's I, a lot I of potential that. pretty much everywhere. Oh. What? what Young guys uh, who are, have got an entrepreneurial spirit and they're they, what you were at at 16, what would you advise them? They said, Uncle Brian, Worm, how do I follow in your footsteps? Stick to it of myself. I think that, I, I, I think that what, what, what worries me about the new economy is we've all seen the Uber RPO, you know, and, uh, and and I look at a lot of these things. I was watching that um, thing about Inventor or something about um, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, blood in Silicon Valley or whatever. You know, I think that there's fundamentals in business, and I think that it's important that these youngsters understand that fundamentals. A business has to make a profit. I, I, I don't know how long shareholders are going to keep bailing out a lot of these new age businesses and just say, well, one day we're going to make a profit, one day we're going to make a profit. But when is that one day? There's a fundamental understanding that if you want to do a business, you need to make it make a profit. Because what's happening, I think, is it's a, it's a problem in business with youngsters. Is everybody looks at wanting to be the next Silicon Valley. But Silicon Valley throws stupid money around for any idea that could be successful. It could have a 10% chance of being successful in the... In the not distant future, but in maybe 20, 30, 40 years time, that does not create jobs in my mind. So what happens, a lot of these youngsters come into business and they actually think that they, 
people are just going to throw money at them. But they need a sustainable business. And I see some business um, business plans that youngsters, I mentor some, some youngsters, and I say, you've got to tell the investor, even if it's an angel investor, they are venture, venture capitalists, they're still going to want to know, you know, in, a, in this world, yeah, how are you going to make money? You've got to convince them. And I think that a lot of people give up on that. I think a lot of, I, I have a saying, I think that I believe 95% of people that are formally employed today wish to work for themselves. Out of those 95%, 5% will try to work for themselves. So they become entrepreneurs. Out of those 5%, that try, 95% fail, and out of those 95% that fail, only 5% try again, and those are the ones that succeed. Well, why and do you think... No, it's bad. I mean, those are, those are terrible odds. Why do you think they're so bad? Is the system just rigged? No, I... People yeah, lazy? I, what is no, it? I what what makes the difference? people want instant gratification. I don't think people want to you know, to, to bear the responsibility to understand what it takes to do business. You know, it's not a nine-to-five job. You know, so there's, there are, there's, there's always, even in an office environment, you see those, those individuals that just I get it. They're in early, they leave late, they're going to go somewhere. They're going to go somewhere. It's just the more time you put into something, the quicker you're going to get there. Sacrifice. But, yeah. And the responsibility that you take on that, that, that we are burdened with that and are, as human beings. And there's nothing better than that. But a lot of youngsters, they don't want the responsibility. But then how are you going to achieve any form of success? That's number one. And I think, how do you want people to invest? A lot of them say, but there's no money to invest. I think that there is money to invest. But I think that the, a lot of the attitudes of these youngsters, they don't realize that they... They, they totally, the, the investors got cold with purely how lardy that these youngsters are with regards to how they're going to achieve this. It is not lardy da. I mean, you, you, you can have all the, the, the poof cushion, cushions and the pool tables in your office and your living life, this free-spirited, what they say is a millennial way, but you still got to run a business and you've got to have a product and you've got to solve a, a, a problem and you've got to be able to eventually get some sort of profit eventually um are your kids are your daughters in business so my oldest is studying uh, at uct bsc my youngsters doing matric this year I, I you know like i think that if i look at my my, my, my oldest is very into studying she wants to go do medicine biochemistry and that shit interests her so I don't see her maybe being business, but my youngster, I do. She looks at things slightly differently. She wants to find ways to monetize, solve solutions. She, she wants to be an architect, but she wants to, she also likes industrial design and wants to solve problems. She wants to find solutions for problems that irritate her. And then she also thinks about how she can monetize it. Isn't that what I an think, entrepreneur is? Yes. Finding solutions to mm. problems that irritate you. Yes. Well, but then you still got to go out and do it. Yeah, but now, yeah, so, close off with. Yeah. 
when people come into Rockamanam, so the, the guys who are hearing, who are listening to this podcast are at an advantage because they now know a little bit more about the background. So what should they be ordering? What, what's, 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 the, what's your favorite on the menu? So Rockamanam is the first restaurant that I've been involved in that I can eat here every day because it's so wild because you can make anything. So I often say to people, our top selling burgers are, I think, BCG, bacon, cheese, and guac. And then a bacon and cheese, but that a lot of people can make their own, and it, it depends on what I feel. Like. But we've got these new things that we're trialing in this store called Smash Stacks, which are we, we've lost the burger bun, but we've actually created an upside down smash. Um, we're going to eat some lunch. That's what I'm going to have. Yeah. Huh? You're going to try some <laughs> different <laughs> stuff. Um, be brave and try something different. You know, human beings we're also we're on this. I, I, I don't know, we're on this, this, this total, we're not spontaneous, we don't take risks, and, I, and, and it's sad, we, 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 we're very, we, 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 we're almost automatic, and when you come to Rock and Moms, you need to try, just step out and try something different, because you can't customize anything, but it's got to be a smash burger, and it's got to be made into something wild, and it's got to have chili on it. That was Brian Eltridge, a boy from unfashionable south of Johannesburg who refused to conform and clearly never will. And that, in truth, is the secret sauce needed to create every authentic entrepreneur. This has been The Rational Perspective. Till the next time, cheerio.